Take a moment. Guess the number of connected devices that exist across the patient journey. Heart rate monitors, HVAC units, security cameras, just to name a few. The scary part? Most are off your radar and represent critical security vulnerabilities to you and your patients. Armis fixes that by delivering complete visibility and intelligence across every device, across any environment. Gain visibility, control risk, mitigate threat. Stop by booth C312 in the Cybersecurity Command Center Hall A and ask Armis how you can see all, secure all. Is that it takes business practices that are perfectly legal and acceptable and encouraged in every other industry and it makes them a federal crime when it involves healthcare. Hi, welcome to HIMSCast. I'm Kat Jersich, Senior Editor at Healthcare IT News. In February, the federal government announced that the DOJ's civil division had recovered more than $5.6 billion in settlements and judgments under the False Claims Act, or FCA, for fiscal year 2021. This was a huge increase from the previous year, and almost 90% of that money was related to health industry claims. Here with me today to discuss FCA enforcement initiatives over the past year and predictions for the next year is Ethan Davis, partner at King & Spalding. Ethan, thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Kat. Happy to be here. Let's get started with a look back over the past year with that enormous increase we just discussed. So what changes have you seen with FCA enforcement initiatives over 2021? So I've seen a number of things, Kat, um, that have changed. I think one of the first developments is a, a wake up from the Justice Department on post-acute care enforcement, mm. uh, including enforcement related to skilled nursing facilities. We saw a bit of a lapse of this enforcement in 2020 um, when SNFs were at the, at the core of the pandemic and the, and the government seemed to give them a little bit of a break. But I think that the government has woken up and we're seeing a lot of activity directed at skilled nursing facilities and other post-acute care providers now. And, and we saw that throughout 2021. I think we're also seeing as a second development a wake up uh, from the government on private equity enforcement. So private equity has been investing in healthcare and the life sciences to a greater degree over the last several years than it has in the past. And DOJ has been looking for ways to hold private equity companies directly accountable um, for uh, perceived misconduct committed by their portfolio companies. And then the final example I'll give is the new DOJ cybersecurity initiative, which is led out of the civil division, the division I used to run at DOJ. Mm. Um, you know, there, there is a tendency when new leadership comes in to DOJ to put a shiny new label on stuff that the lawyers have been doing all along. And to a degree, that's true with cybersecurity. Cybersecurity, FCA enforcement has been a thing for, for several years now. Um, but what I think this new initiative shows is that this initiative now has the serious backing of the highest levels of the Department of Justice, and it's something to pay close attention to in the months and years ahead. Definitely. Could you go into that a little bit more? Um, what does this cybersecurity initiative entail for listeners that maybe aren't up on that? So, you know, anytime a company does business with the government, has a contract with the government, um, the company, the contract generally incorporates some requirements around cybersecurity, protection of patient data, um, obligation to report data breaches, et cetera. Um, and when companies fail to comply with those obligations, that can trigger a False Claims Act case. And obviously, um, those 
those uh, protections have become more important during the pandemic when so many things are happening virtually. Um, and as, techno as technology continues to advance, those, those uh, and data breaches become more and more common. Um, this has become an area that the government is really focused on. Um, the, the cybersecurity initiative is a, a new program or a new working group or whatever you want to call it base that is, as I understand it, headed by the civil divisions, commercial litigation branch, but it will also include a variety of other components of the Department of Justice. So it remains to be seen exactly what they'll do, but it, at the very least, it signifies a more concentrated government focus on this area. Definitely. And you did mention how the pandemic has sort of shifted approaches to cybersecurity. Are there other ways that COVID-19 has affected the federal approach to fraud investigations? And how might health providers feel some of those shifts? There sure are. Well, I mean, I, I was uh, I was running the civil division during the early days of the pandemic. So I can mm. tell you firsthand how it affected the nuts and bolts of how the government was operating. I mean, everyone was immediately working from home. Uh, that the government is not used to that, or at least was not used to that back in 2020. Um, we didn't have any uh, real ability to do video calls, at least where I was sitting. I know other components of DOJ did. So that just inflicted an immediate slowdown, I think, across the board in terms of all sorts of investigations. Now, even today, still today, the main justice uh, offices are still working from home. And so that slowdown has persisted, I think, even through the present day. Now, people are getting, the government lawyers are getting more used to it, and uh, they now know how to do video calls, and it's easier for them to work uninterrupted from, uh, from their homes. But I think there is still an inherent drag on, mm -hmm. the, on how fast these investigations are proceeding, but they will return eventually, things will ramp up again, and I think we can foresee a, a serious increase in activity um, probably starting in the next couple of months and persisting over the next few years. The other, on a more substantive note, what I'd flag um, about the pandemic and fraud investigations is obviously the CARES Act. Um, and as relevant to healthcare providers, the Provider Relief Fund, which was established as part of the CARES Act, it injected hundreds of billions of dollars um, into healthcare providers um, in order to keep them afloat during the pandemic. But obviously, like everything, that comes out, like all the money that comes out of the federal government, it came with strings attached, uh, including rules about how the money could be spent. Um, and although we haven't seen a huge amount of activity in terms of provider relief fund investigations yet, I think that's because the complete story of the program is yet to be written and reporting is still happening. And I think that is there's gonna be a long tail with provider relief fund investigations going forward. Um, one final uh, thing I'd flag in terms of, um, of the pandemic and fraud investigations is clinical trial fraud. Uh, so mm. during the pandemic, um, clinical trials became a lot more difficult to conduct. It became harder for pharma companies and medical device companies to oversee them because a lot of the activities were happening remotely. Um, and DOJ has an ongoing initiative now to, uh, to root out and find clinical trial fraud. They've brought a number of um, indictments and criminal charges recently involving um, investigators and contract research organizations. And I, I know the DOJ is trying to work its way up the chain 
to pharmaceutical companies and medical device companies that sponsor these trials. Healthcare providers, to the extent they participate in these trials, should keep a close eye on that development. That's really interesting. And you've mentioned a few kind of enforcement trends here. Are there any others that you think uh, healthcare providers should kind of keep an eye on going forward? Yeah, I think one thing I haven't mentioned, but that should be at number one on the list for all healthcare providers at all times is the anti-kickback statute. And that, I cannot overstate how focused DOJ is on on the False Claims Act and the anti-kickback statute in particular. Um, that I'm handling quite a few False Claims Act investigations right now, and nine out of 10 of them have some connection to the anti-kickback statute. So that, for healthcare providers, that means keeping a close eye on your relationships with physicians, uh, medical directors, um, any payments that are headed out to physicians are a subject of serious DOJ scrutiny. Um, if you're on the life sciences side, if you're a medical device company or a, or a pharma company, um, that means keeping an eye on your consulting agreements with physicians, um, any other you know, speaker programs that, that you may be uh, sponsoring, um, and anything else that could implicate the anti-kickback statute, because it is an exceptionally broadly worded statute. It, it makes it illegal to provide any remuneration, which is defined as anything of value to a healthcare provider uh, to, to induce business out of that healthcare provider. And at least that's how broadly the government interprets it. I, I take issue with that, with that broad of an interpretation, um, but that's how the government views it. And that is triggering in my direct experience right now, a very large number of government investigations. I am remembering as you're talking about a, an anti-kickback statute case involving an electronic health record provider where I think they took doctors to conduct to the Kentucky Derby, if I'm remembering correctly. And it was the whole situation and that did come up in the settlement. So you're remembering correctly. There are electronic health records is a stated DOJ area of focus mm -hmm. and, all, and all of those cases involve the anti-kickback statute in some ways. And many of the recent resolutions involved allegations from DOJ that, um, that the electronic health record company took healthcare provider customers to expensive resorts or um, on expensive trips, expensive dinners. And so that's, a, that's a, another branch of the anti-kickback statute tree. Absolutely. I do have to admit that I I, I enjoy reading about those cases and seeing the lists of all the um, alleged uh, perks that <laughs> provider customers were getting. It's kind of entertaining and a sea of sort of dry legal documents. Yeah, they're, they're, the fact patterns in these cases tend to be some of the more entertaining ones. The trouble with the anti-kickback statute and why it, why it ends up being so relevant here and gets enforced so often is that it takes business practices that are perfectly legal and acceptable and encouraged in every other industry, and it makes them a federal crime when it involves healthcare. So it's easy for sales reps who may not operate exclusively in the healthcare space to get tripped up by it. They think this is what they've been trained to do their, their entire careers, and then all of a sudden, if it involves a healthcare provider customer, it's suddenly illegal. So it's a, it's a situation where the, this statute goes against all sorts of business common sense. And that's why it's resulting in this, this number of enforcement. 
That's a great point. And I also wanted to make sure we talked about um, somewhere in this conversation about telehealth, because obviously that's seen a huge uptick uh, during the COVID-19 pandemic and telehealth fraud has been a recurrent concern among those thinking about permanent policies to instate, specifically federal legislators, it comes up a lot. And we have seen some cases in telehealth fraud enforcement. And so are there concerns specific to health tech and telehealth that you'd like listeners to be aware of when it comes to virtual care? I think so. I, you know, To state the obvious, telehealth has become a major component of the delivery of healthcare services in this country during the pandemic. And while some at the beginning thought that the that telehealth would would go away once the pandemic ends, it's now clear that regardless of uh, when the pandemic ends, um, telehealth is here to stay. People have gotten used to it. HHS is likely to make its telehealth waivers permanent, at least to some degree. Um, and so this is this is a phenomenon that we're going to be um, dealing with for quite a long time. Um, you know, at all the other point that makes it more relevant is that. Telehealth increases the opportunities for interactions between patients and doctors because uh, it's easier to get on the phone with your doctor when it's just a telehealth visit, which in turn increases the number of claims for payments submitted by doctors to federal healthcare programs, which in turn increases the opportunity for enforcement. And so I think what you'll see going forward is DOJ suspicions about, about issues like, did the doctor actually spend enough time with the patient during a telehealth visit in order to, uh, to really write that prescription? Um, or did the, or, and you'll also see DOJ scrutiny of claims submitted from telehealth visits um, to see any suspicious trends in the data. And I think you'll see that. And then I think what we've already seen, what, we'll, what we may see more of are DOJ prosecutions and False Claims Act investigations involving telemedicine companies. And the fact pattern that we've seen already is a, uh, a telemedicine company that DOJ says would go out and recruit Medicare beneficiaries and then connect them with doctors who would then write the beneficiaries prescriptions for various items. Um, but according to DOJ, the doctors never actually saw the patient either in person, never even had a telehealth visit. Um, it was just a a mechanism, according to DOJ, where the company would would serve as a channel for for claims submitted to the federal government. I've heard about some of those as well. And again, uh, those cases often involve details about what uh, the accused individual spent their money on, which again, I very much enjoy reading. Um, something one of them involved buying a jet ski, and that really stuck with me. <laughs> that was involved in the press release from DOJ about it. Um, so given everything you've outlined, you have touched on a number of ways that providers and organizations might mitigate some of these risks. Is there anything else that comes to mind um, so that providers, organizations, stakeholders can protect themselves? Yeah, I, I think that one really important thing to do is to look at data. Uh, mm. So, you know, it used to be and it still is to a large degree that DOJ False Claims Act enforcement was driven by relator key TAM lawsuits, um, something north of 80% of all DOJ False Claims Act investigations begin that way. And that has the effect of outsourcing um, DOJ enforcement to really private parties. Uh, but that 
you know, when I was when I was the head of the civil division, that started to change a little bit. We started to focus more on um, initiating our own investigations um, and not relying on what not relying as much on what whistleblowers are bringing to our attention. And the way we did that was through data analysis. And um, we would look for outliers in the data, um, look for other corroborating information to suggest that something uh, might be afoot and things would start. And I, th I think what you'll see over the next few years is that data analysis inside the government will play an increasingly significant role in identifying potential enforcement targets. And what that means for healthcare providers is take a look at your own data uh, before the government sees it. Huh. See whether you might, might appear to the government as an outlier on a particular metric. And if you, if you think you might, then take a look at why that's happening. Do your own internal investigation so you have an explanation for it and an answer. And even if that internal investigation turns up something wrong, that means that you can fix it before the government gets to it, which can result in a lot more credit. Hmm. Uh, the other... The other thing I'd say in terms of providers protecting themselves is to conduct your own proactive compliance assessments, assessments of your compliance program. And now there's a couple ways to do this. There's the, the way that most, most providers and companies like to do it, which is a review of the policies and procedures. You, you talk to uh, the compliance personnel, you try to get a sense at a more general level of how the program is operating. And that's fine. That's good. Uh, but what we've been doing for some clients is a more um, is a, a a more aggressive kind of compliance review, uh, where you actually look at the real source of risk, or the most significant sources of risk in a company, which is always the emails. Yeah. And ways to do this through a blinded email review, so it's not too intrusive. Uh, but the way to get a sense of what the real risk is is to do that kind of compliance assessment. That's great. Are there any other predictions that you might have going forward? We've reviewed a lot today, so um, I understand if the answer is no, but are there any other elements that you want to make sure listeners know about looking forward into 2022 and beyond? So I think we've covered most of it. I will, I will say that I think, again, on kickbacks, you can expect more turbocharged kickback investigations because DOJ sticks with what works. Um, and on the kickback side, speaker programs are something to pay attention to because DOJ and OIG have fired shots across the bow uh, for those programs. So as the pandemic recedes, hopefully, and in-person speaker programs come back to the fore, um, I think that's going to be an area to watch. Well, thank you so much, Ethan. This has been a great conversation and I have really enjoyed talking to you about this. Happy to do it. Thanks for having me on, Pat. Course. And to all our listeners, thanks for tuning in. If you liked this episode, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and stay safe out there. While patient safety is always top of mind, device security tends to be an afterthought. In fact, according to analysts, the vast majority of connected medical devices remain unmanaged, unagentable, and unsecured. Armis is the only vendor that delivers complete device visibility and intelligence so that you can mitigate threats and focus on what really matters, improving patient outcomes. Stop by booth C312 in the Cybersecurity Command Center Hall A and find out how Armis can help you secure the entire patient journey end to end.